morning. It's been a long time since I've seen you. <laughs> We're glad that you're here with us, and uh, we've got a, a new friend playing uh, on our worship team today, Lee. And uh, did you all say thank you to him? He was on, or clap or something? Yeah, I don't know. I said say thank you, and so you did, but you're not used to saying that, but... Uh, so he's uh, a friend of Aaron and Katz, and uh, so we're glad that he was joining us on base today. Um, I'm going to share with you, oh, Kidmo, thanks, buddy. Yeah, I don't want to make you stay in here any longer than you have to, uh, Braden. Kidmo, if you're a Kidmo, you can head on out. Listen, from the mouth of babes, right? Amen. So, uh, and If you're our guest, you have a second through fifth grader. Kidmo is an environment for them. To have their own teaching, small group stuff, and you can pick them up when we're done in here. So I, I want to share with you, uh, I, we're going to start a new series today. And this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. And I'm going to attempt over these next few weeks to frame this in a way that I think is true to Scripture and true to the human condition and the sense of who we are as people, fallible, trying to get through this world the best we can, and experiencing a fullness and a joy in life that a lot of times we're missing. And uh, this is a great time of year to talk about it, uh, because people all over the world are making New Year's resolutions. How many of you are making New Year's resolutions? Raise your hand. How many of you have woefully given up ever trying to make another resolution for the rest of your life. Yes, the majority of people. And that is, con- that is commensurate with age, I believe. More years of giving up. <laughs> Say, I'm just not going to try anymore. But anyways, so I, I wanted to see what kind of resolutions people were making. These are the top 10 resolutions people are making so far for 2019. See if you are somewhere in this list. The first one, which is by far the first one, is diet or eat healthier. Now raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand if you're doing that. Second one is like it, exercise more. You know, I shared with you last week or the week before about how we have to monitor the influences we have in our lives and that there are some influences that we watch specifically on TV and radio and internet that are constantly trying to tell us how terrible the world is. Uh, One of my favorite uh, news outlets uh, talked about exercising more and they had a headline this week and it said literally, is your resolution to exercise more bad news for you? You know, it's like, oh, thanks for the encouragement. Um, but exercise more is a top one, which all goes along with number three, lose weight. I doubt many of us dieted over Christmas. Number four, save more and spend less. That may be on your list which we're going to be talking about that in a few weeks. Number five, learn a new skill or hobby. That's a great resolution. Number six, quit smoking. Uh, I've got that one licked, so not worried about that. Seven, read more. Oh, I, that's, I'm telling you, that'll change your life if you read more. And it doesn't always have to be the Bible. Just exercising your mind in reading is a huge skill that will pay in dividends your entire life. Number eight, find another job. Some of you may be looking for another job. Number nine, drink less alcohol. Again, not a problem for me. Uh, number 10, spend more time with family and friends. You know, and the 
The reality is, as I went through this list, I was like, you know, there's a whole bunch in here that I'd like to do in my life. And when you start looking at all of the things that you can add, just think if you were going to add four of these things to your life from what you were already doing. Let me ask you this. How many of you sat around in 2018 and said, you know what I need? I need to be doing more stuff. How many of you said that? Okay. Leslie did. Okay. So we've got a few people. Come see me after. I have a list. I'll help you fulfill that inner desire to do more. All right. All right. Um, right now my, my leaves need to be raked. So if you guys could just see me after and come to the house, that would be great. All right. Uh, I want to help you out. Most of us though are not looking to do more. Most of us in reality can't handle the stuff we've got. Now, the way we deal with that is we just kind of let things go. We kind of ignore that they're there, or we let some areas of our life slide as we focus on other more pressing, more urgent things that we need to focus on. And the reality is, is that most of us aren't looking to add more to our lives because most of us can barely keep up with the things we're doing now. And the reason I bring that up is because a lot of times we are missing the very thing we're looking for and all the other things that we're doing. What is it that we're looking for? It surely could be different for each one of us, but if we really step back and we look at the big picture, then what we are all looking for, are we not, is to be happy, to be okay with our lives, to feel like we're doing a good job with managing our responsibilities, Or maybe to a lesser degree, but maybe to a bigger degree, that we're just content. We've been talking a lot over the last few months about what Scripture says about being content. And the the truth is, is that most of us are not. And you live in a culture that wants you to be anything but content. Because once you're content, it starts to change your behaviors, your practices, your priorities, and your attitudes. Once you become content, you don't need so much. When you don't need so much, you don't spend so much. When you don't spend so much, the people that are shouting the loudest in your face don't make as much, and that's not good for them. And so they continue to send a message that says you need more. You're not enough. This is not good life. Somebody else is doing a better job than you. As we look on our social media networks of Facebook or Twitter, but increasingly Instagram or Pinterest or some visual reminder that someone else is doing life better than we are. What if we added to our resolutions something a little different that didn't have to do with necessarily our physiques, not necessarily another job, but what would it look like if we truly experienced the power of Christ in your life in 2019? Now, I don't say that as some little knee-jerk statement, because in church, I think a lot of times when we think of these things, we say them without really believing that there's real power there. What would it look like for you to live your life in such a way that you not only knew Jesus was real, you knew he was with you every moment of every day? Not only that he was with you, but he was actively working in you and for you. What would that look like? That when you get up to go to work tomorrow, you're not just going to go through the routine, but you are empowered by the Savior of the world in order to live your life 
in a way that brings you fulfillment, contentment, and joy. The reason we don't talk about resolutions like this is because a lot of times we give up that this is possible. In the church, this is a major problem today. People come, they attend, they serve, they feel empty. Now, the question we have to ask is, is that because we ourselves do not know Christ? Is that because Christ himself is not real or that he is not active within our lives? Some of you grew up in a system that said, unless you're doing enough good stuff, Jesus isn't happy with you, so he won't do good things for you. And so you've heard time and time again that if Christ is not active within your life, then it's all your fault. What would it look like if you experienced Christ in your life in 2019 like you never have before? The reality is, is we cannot put a resolution list like going to the gym or eating less or doing something like that. We can't put that list together to guarantee this is going to happen. And this is another problem that we have within the church is we miss the reality of what it looks like to know Christ and to walk with him out of all the platitudes that we put together talking about him. And increasingly, what I believe is that we should be able to experience the promises of God in our lives, but oftentimes we do not feel like we are. So let me ask you, do you, are you experiencing his promises in your life right now? Some of you, no doubt, are going to say, yes, absolutely. I am experiencing it. It It's life-giving, life-fulfilling. I'm excited about what he's doing in me. Some of you may not feel that way. You may be thinking, you know, there was a time when I felt like he was real and he was active and I could hear him. And I I felt like my life was on a trajectory that he was leading. But now I'm not so sure. And, And maybe others are saying, you know, I've been coming to church, but I still don't feel it. I'm still not experiencing it. I mean, I'm, I'm doing the things I think I'm supposed to do, but I, I, I don't know. I'm still uncertain whether this is real because I myself have not found it yet. And what I have found is in my own life is that one of the reasons that we experience this problem is not that Jesus isn't real and not that he isn't active, but the reality is that we are distracted We are distracted by many, many, many good things. But Jesus never said, I want to be one of the many good things in your life. Instead, he said, I want to be the best thing in your life. The main thing in your life. Everything else will fall into place if you'll put me in that area of prominence rather than putting me off to the side. I was looking at uh, just what are... You know, what's going on as far as our schedules and what's happening? And I, I ran across this article. Well, before I get there, let me, let me read these scriptures and ask you also if you're experiencing the promises of God in your life. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, we've read several times. I think I read it last week even. It says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Do you feel that? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle Does he feel gentle to you? I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does his yoke feel easy and does his burden feel light? Or does it feel heavy and unattainable? Does it feel like that he's driving us like a taskmaster And we're not good enough. We can't get there, and maybe we never will. Are we experiencing that? 
Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. Let me ask you, when is the last time you were truly still and God met you there? Now, I know you've been still, right? Lay in bed. Sometimes maybe you toss and turn. You can't go to sleep. I know you've been still. But when's the last time you were still and God met you there? He met you there and you knew it was him. You were encouraged. You were filled. You knew this was real. And you were excited about what he was doing in your life. When was the last time? For 2019, one of the things that I want us to do is I want us to get focused on the things that God says really matters. There is a a truth in life that people increasingly live complex lives. It's complex not only because of our schedules and because of our busyness. It's complex in the number of things we're trying to accomplish and the type of person we're trying to be. It's complex in our relationships. Sometimes when we read Scripture, we think Scripture is complex and we want to talk about, well, what could it mean? What does it mean? We might even argue about an interpretation. But what does it look like to focus on what God says really matters? And when He does tell us what really matters, it usually is not complex. It usually is very simple. See, complexity is a part of life. It's a part of the world that we live in. But complexity is not the way the soul was made to function. The soul was made to be pure, to be whole. When we talk about the soul being perfect, perfect means complete, not without fault. You were made to be that way and to live simply in the presence of God. And yet we live in a world that is anything but simple. We look at how do we solve the major problems of the world. It's complex, isn't it? Do we build a wall? Do we not build a wall? Who should be in Congress? What's Congress going to do now? Who should be president? They're not easy. When we look at what's going on in nations around us, I, I constantly see and I feel even within myself, I'll read some article and I'll get all inflamed and just know clearly what the answer is. And then I read something else that sheds a little more light. And I realize, oh, this issue is a little more complex. I see. But God is not calling us to life of difficult, confusing complexity. He's calling us to a life of following him simply. Now, I don't want to introduce this in such a way that you believe I'm going to either start giving you a bunch of platitudes that are just going to disappoint us like they always do. Not that Jesus has ever called us to something simplistic. There's something very different between simple and simplistic. When I started ministry, you know, some of you, you are so used to technology on a level that we only dreamed of when I was a kid. Literally, we would get a stick and pretend it was a gun or something else, and we were excited about that. I mean, we had to play guns too, right? I didn't grow up in the, you know, Stone Age, but yeah, it, it, we dreamed about this stuff. When I started ministry, I, my brother-in-law is also a pastor, and we would joke about the fact that we were soon going to look like Batman with a utility belt because I, I would have a phone uh, on my belt on one side, I had a digital PDA on the other side, and we just guess what's it going to look like in 20 years. We're going to have a belt full of gadgets. And now we have it all in one, right? Simple does not mean simplistic. 
Has anyone ever tried to fix their broken phone? Simple does not mean simplistic. In fact, the most well-executed things that are simple usually have taken a great deal of effort to create. So I don't want you to enter into these next few weeks believing that what I'm saying is following Jesus is simplistic. But it is simple. The complexities that we embrace within our lives are not things that Jesus ever wanted us to contend with. But that all entered into the Garden of Eden, and we struggle with it today, and we'll struggle with it until Jesus returns or until we go to be with him. In 1899, it was interesting, an economist and socialist named, by the name of Thorstein Veblen, I don't know if that's the right way to say, say their name, but this is what they said about how people spent their life trying to achieve success. He said, conspicuous abstention from labor, that means not having to work becomes the conventional mark of superior pecuniary achievement. Aren't you glad we don't talk like that anymore? (laughs) This was written in 1899, a theory that he called the theory of the leisure class. And basically, this is what he theorized, that if you wanted to be successful in the world, you would demonstrate your success Not by the work that you did, but by the amount of time you had for leisure activities. And this is that old mindset that those who were super wealthy would just sit around on their yachts, sit around the pool, sleep in late, and they just somehow would make money by not doing anything. And so you would demonstrate your success by your lack of work and all of the free time you had to do whatever you want. That was success. Some of you still believe that is possible. And that's what you're uh, trying to get to. That was 1899. In 2017, I ran across an article that was written by a number of people from Columbia, from Harvard, from Yale, from other places that had done a study on what does it look like in 2017 to be successful. And this is what Sylvia Beleza from Columbia Business School, this is how she worded it. The need to appear busy is driven by the perceptions that a busy person possesses desired human capital characteristics, competence, ambition, and is scarce and in demand on the job market. Now, what she's saying is that in 2017, which certainly is the same today in 2019, is that the way that you try to demonstrate value is not that you have become so successful that now you get to sit around and drink champagne. You demonstrate you're successful by the amount of time that you put in at work. Because if you are that busy, then people will look at you and say, you must be valuable. People want you. You're in demand. There are not many people like you. You rise above everyone else. So you must do more work than anyone else. And what's interesting is, is that you actually find a correlation, even though no matter what people tell you about working harder versus working smarter, there is an economic correlation right now between wealth and the number of hours worked. If you've been following any of the drama over this past year with Elon Musk, you'll find that he works all the time, right? That is the picture of success today. 
Now, the problem with that definition is that all of us, whether we agree with it or not, fall into it somehow. We secretly, internally believe that our value is determined in this way. And that leads us to a number of problems in our relationships with each other and in our relationship with God. For one, when you demonstrate your value by wealth, most of us aren't there. How many of you are truly financially wealthy? Like you could fly in here in a helicopter or a private plane. Please see me after, (laughs) if that's you. Most of us are never going to reach the level of the truly wealthy. And along the way, we're going to feel somehow that we are less than those who do. So that spawns all kinds of coping mechanisms within us. For those who are successful, ego begins to come out. For those who do not feel successful, insecurities begin to set in. And whether you're struggling with insecurities or whether you're struggling with ego, with those two things entering into our lives, our relationships begin to fragment and break apart because it is difficult to be in a good relationship with someone with a massive ego and it is difficult to be in a relationship with someone with massive insecurities. So when Jesus says... My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the culture in which you and I live today, we laugh. What do you mean it's easy? There's nothing easy about this life. We're just trying to get ahead. We're just trying to make it. Number of people living paycheck to paycheck is astonishing. The number of people who are just trying to get their debt paid is astonishing. Thinking about getting ahead doesn't even occur to us. We are so fractured by trying to keep up with what we've already done. So as we look at these realities, how do we find what it looks like to follow Him? Is it possible that we are actually trying to guarantee our way through our own efforts rather than simply being the people that God created us to be? Well, you could probably guess, I would say yes. That is what many of us are struggling with. So as we talk about being simple, there are a few things I want us to take a look at over these next few weeks. God says that we should have a simple faith. He says we should be a people of simple worship. God says that we should have a simple schedule for our lives. We're going to talk about the Sabbath that week. God says that we should have simple love, simply love everyone. See, that becomes complex when we start to decide, well, who should we love? Who should we not love? Who deserves our love? Who does not deserve our love? Who have we tried to love and they rejected our love? And he just says, just love. The simple always wins over the complex. It's Occam's razor. Whenever you're faced with trying to solve a particular problem, most likely the most simple answer is the right answer. In the way that we love others, that is absolutely true. We're going to talk about a simple life. A simple life is how we spend and how we buy. The reality is I'm not an expert on this, but I'm telling you I am striving towards it quickly. (laughs) Our possessions often own us. 
the debt that we go into to have them take over our lives. We wake up worrying and in a sweat of how we're going to get through. What does it look like to have a simple life? I'm a firm believer that simple is better. As a church, what does it look like to be a simple church? Now, some of you who are, uh, you are attuned into the simple church movement. This is not necessarily what I'm talking about, although maybe a little bit it is. We're not going through the simple church stuff. But what does it look like for us to simplify and to be more effective in being the community of God in Red Bank and Chattanooga as a result? And we're going to finish talking about a simple mission. We don't have to make it complex. If we're going to follow in what it means to live simple lives with Christ, Hebrews eleven six, one of my favorite verses, says, the second part of it says, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So what I want to share with you for the next few minutes, very quickly, two things, is what does it look like to seek God Because I believe seeking God is the idea of a simple faith. Not simplistic, but simple. What does it look like to seek God and to find Him? We have a great uh, conversation between disciples in Matthew chapter 18, trying to determine which of us is the best disciple. Do you all ever have that in your house? Sometimes... Uh, my kids, commensurate with their age, ask the question, uh, am I your favorite? Yeah, as they get older, they give up. You know, but when they're younger, I'm your favorite, aren't I? You know, yeah, you are my favorite youngest, whatever. You've know, you got to come up with creative ways to answer that. Uh, what does it look like to be the greatest? Sometimes in the church, we've already have this weird, absurd list of who's the greatest within the church, right? Missionaries, number one. Pastors, number two. Volunteers, number three. Everybody else somewhere down here, right? Isn't that the way it goes? That's when I grew up. That's what I thought. That's why I became a pastor. I want to be better and all you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I find interesting Jesus' response, which I think speaks to us today, when the disciples are like, yeah, which one of us is the best disciple? Which one of us is best at this? Verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 1 says, At the time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put them in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's strong words. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, which I love because kids don't have egos when they're little. It's amazing to watch children. They're just unfettered joy in life. They just, they're not bogged down by the complexities that you and I get bogged down in. But Jesus is not just saying, you know what, you should, you, should, you should do better in this. He says, literally, unless you approach faith like that of a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a very strong dividing line in how Jesus understands our faith. Now, I don't know how many of you run businesses, but I I doubt many of you would turn over your accounts to your youngest child. Maybe some of you who are older and they're through college, but what about you that have five-year-olds, six-year-olds, three-year-olds? Would you turn them over? 
Because as we age and as we live within this world, our, our lives become more complex. The systems we must work in for our jobs become more complex. Understanding the tax code becomes more complex. You know, we've got all these complexities we have to deal with and we know well, they're not ready for this and, and they shouldn't be ready for this. But what Jesus is saying, but in the kingdom of God, we operate differently than in the kingdom of the rest of the world. Here we operate on what is simple, not complex. Complex leads to confusion. Simple leads to life and contentment. The message says those same verses like this. For an answer, Jesus called over a child whom he stood in the middle of the room and said, I'm telling you once and for all, unless you return to square one and start over like children, you're not even going to to get a look at the kingdom, let alone get in. Whoever becomes simple and elemental again, like this child, will rank high in God's kingdom. What's more, when you receive the childlike on my account, it's the same as receiving me. Now, childlike does not necessarily equate immature. I'm not suggesting we all throw fits and tantrums and we're going to replace coffee with sippy cups on Sunday mornings, right? But I am suggesting that there's something we've done to our faith and we've damaged it. We've given it unrealistic expectations and we have tried to attain it in ways that the world says are good, but God says will not work. And when God says they will not work and yet we try them anyways and we just try harder and harder and harder because that's the way of the world that we eventually give up on God rather than saying, I'm, this is wrong. I'm seeing this wrong. So what does it look like? For me, a simple faith always begins with belief. What do you believe? I don't mean what are you okay with in the church? You know, I've gotten in trouble a lot of times over my ministry in the church. People have gotten mad at me. Not so much here. Here, people just leave. I don't know what happened. They don't ever tell me they're mad at me. But, you know, I think it's because we started the church. But in churches that I didn't start and I came in, they wanted to let me know when I messed up. I found it interesting. I never had a person come to me and have a problem with anything I taught or anything I said or interpreted from Scripture. There was always some other weird thing that I would get in trouble with. If you are thinking about going into ministry, trust me, you will find this out for yourself. The weird way that the church operates. Belief was never something I got in trouble with. One of the reasons I give you so much Scripture on Sunday mornings is because I'm trying to prove my point. And some of the way I know I'm, I'm weird. <laughs> some of the ways I see things are different. And that's why I, I'm, I'm not just taking a text and trying to prove it, but I, I'm trying to show you this is really what God is saying. And so it begins with belief and some of the basic questions that we have to settle. And I don't mean that we just say, well, I agree that should be true. I mean, this I stake my life on that this is true. Next slide, does God exist? Maybe the deeper question, can I trust him? Does he really love me? And I don't mean the cleaned up you that everyone else sees. I mean the person who's deep down inside. Does he really love me? Occasionally I'll talk with couples and one of the 
worst realities you can find yourself in is to be in a relationship with somebody that they don't know who you really are and you're doing everything you can to make sure they don't see that person. That is a terrible way of living life. That's called a complex life, not a simple one. But does he really love the me that's all messed up? The me that has thoughts I don't want anybody to know. The me that has a past that I would be scared to death to be exposed. With all of the privacy concerns on Facebook and people are fleeing Facebook in droves, I I often ask myself, why? I don't put anything on Facebook that I'm afraid for anybody to know. You know, I don't do it. I I know that this may surprise you, but I don't have any compromising photos of myself online anywhere. I know that surprises you. I mean, because I mean, all of this, you know, is going to sell something somewhere, right? I don't have any compromising pictures on there. No one's ever going to say we have pictures of Mark, you know, that he doesn't want you to see. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got a bunch of those, most every picture I've ever been in, but none that, like, I would really be ashamed of. I don't say things on there. I delete stuff. Sometimes I'll put a post out, and all of a sudden, in the argument ensues, I'm out, delete. (laughs) That's not not what this is for. I don't worry about privacy. I don't care if you see anything. I don't care who sees what I put on there, and I am certain that I keep it that way. But does he really love me for who I am? That is a central question for many of us. If you grew up in a system or in a church or in a family that you had to prove that you were worthy, you struggle with this. You question every person who ever says, I love you. Because you believe somewhere deep down inside, if they really knew, they would not. This is a central issue. What do you believe about this? Does God really love you? Is he working on my behalf? What do you believe about this? If you believe or grew up in a church that said that God is working on your behalf as long as you struggle every time anyone talks about what God is doing in someone else's life. Because if you don't feel that God is doing something, whose fault is it? What do you believe? Is he working on my behalf? Is heaven a real thing, a real place? Is this all just an act? See, what we believe about these types of questions and others will determine the way we live our lives. We will determine whether we develop complexities because we're not certain of the answer or whether we'll live simply because we have put a nail in that coffin. I believe this is true. Simple faith begins with simple belief. Do we believe what God says is true? And this is not some intellectual assignment that you have to just go and decide, okay, I'm just going to believe it's true. I don't know if it is or not. I'm just going to believe it's true. That is not what Jesus said we would have to do as his followers. Instead, what he said was, I am leaving a helper in the world that is going to draw you to the place of seeing that I am real. He is real. God is real. And he is going to be working in your life. And if you will allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, you will be drawn to know that Christ is real. It was never about 
about us simply saying, well, I don't know if this is real or not. I'm just going to say it is and hope it is. There's a part of faith that is there, but that is really not what Jesus has asked us to do. He has said simply, let me influence you and you will know what I'm saying is true. There are many of us within this room that know this is true. Maybe all of us. I don't know everyone's story. I know Jesus is real. I experience him. I talk with him. He talks back. I'm not in the way that you may think. But many of the ways that he speaks to me, as I've said before, is he brings to my memory scripture I've already read. And other times I will be thinking out loud and praying to God. And just like my parents when I was a kid, he will come down on me. How dare you? He speaks. Not just to me. It's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a follower of his. Because I believe him and I love him. If you believe him and you're his follower and you love him, he will speak to you. But not in complexities. In simple faith. And in simple belief like children. I read a definition of faith I just thought was spot on. There are many definitions of faith, but this is, I can't remember the the author's name, but I didn't come up with this. He said, faith is thinking highly enough of God to trust him. I want you to think right now, who do you trust most in this world? And don't say God. I mean, yes, okay, If if it's God, good for you. But I'm talking a person. Who do you trust most? See, in our relationships with other people, trust is is paramount. We have to trust someone else. That's one of the reasons that that some started coming to our church is because we we said over and over and over again, come as you are, and and we, we meant it. We didn't say come as you are, and then once you're here, we're going to start judging you until you become what we want you to be. We meant it, come as you are. There has to be a level of trust there. There has to be a level of trust that when somebody walks in, that if they had walked into another church and they would get weird looks, if they come here, they can trust us that not only will they not get weird looks, we will actually love them instead of judge them. Trust. See, the people that you are best friends with, you trust them. You can share a part of yourself with them that you can't share with others because you trust what they will do with that information. Trust is crucial. And the way that you know that you trust someone is that you believe, again, I didn't come up with this, you believe that they are on your side even if it cost them something. You love me, even if it costs you to do that. Even if you have to put up with my mess. Even if you have to to listen to my rambling. Even if you're the one who calls more often than I do. Even if I have to apologize way more than you do, you're still my friend. You develop a level of trust and you say, I trust you. I can, I can be a person who is honestly who I am with you. And even if it costs you something, you are on my side. This is the picture of the gospel. Because it cost Jesus his life and he said, you are worth it. 
You can trust me. I will give up everything for you. That is a picture of trusting someone. That is a picture of faith that we have a high enough picture of God that we trust him and we trust him to the degree that even if it costs him something, he is with us and loves us. Hebrews 11 says this about faith. Beginning with chapter 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered, a, offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was. Verse 6 says, And without faith... It is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do we believe? Simple faith says, I I believe. I don't have to have all the evidence in the world. I believe. My belief is not based on complexities. My belief is not based on, well, if this is true and that's true and this is true and that's true. And if I get some concessions over here and if I kind of ignore this teaching over there, then I can agree that God is real. That is not what simple faith is. Simple faith simply says, I can see that you are real and I trust you completely. What would it look like? If our lives exhibited this simple trust in God, when we read scripture, would we wrangle over the words? Would we wrangle over the interpretations? I find it crazy that so many places in scripture, we will argue about what it means until we make it mean what we want it to mean, because that feels better than simply saying, this is what God says. This is the way it is. There's so many places in scripture that we do that. Now, how do you develop a simple, trusting faith? Verse 6 again, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I believe this. And I love that he rewards those who seek him, not rewards those who did X, Y, or Z. Because there's no destination point about seeking other than him. If you're beginning in your journey as a follower of Jesus and you're seeking. Or if you've been a believer for 50 years and you're still seeking. He is pleased with us no matter where we are on the journey. Which is why we named this place Journey. Everyone's on their own journey. But if you're seeking him, it doesn't matter where you are. He is pleased with you. Even if you don't know all of scripture, even if you have questions, even if you are not at the place where you fully trust yet, are you seeking him? He is pleased with you. A simple faith says that in all of life's complexities of what I could be focused on, getting better at my job, being a better parent, being better at some video game, being better at whatever, being more successful than my friends, having better pictures on social media than the people I went to high school with. Of all the things I could focus my life on, number one, I'm seeking you, period. Period. I'm seeking you. God is pleased 
with that. It doesn't mean that you've arrived. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that you are seeking him. How do you develop this simple trusting faith? Two things, and then I'm going to finish for today. The first one, Romans tells us, is by hearing the word of God. Romans 10, 11 through 17 says, The scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. This is a change in the New Testament from God is for the the Hebrews and then the Jews to now God is for everyone that would call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But, verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We have to be exposed to this truth because the world does not give it to you naturally. Now, there are places in Scripture that point to the reality that in creation, God has meticulously inserted himself so that even through the creation, something within you will say there is more than just this. But faith in Christ comes... First, by hearing the word of God. I would love if one of your resolutions was to spend more time in God's word. Some of you. Some of you, you're like, I follow you on version, and you, you read. I don't think you even eat. You just read scripture all the time. It's amazing. It begins... By hearing the word of God. Second thing. This is what I want to leave you with. Simple today. Second thing is by living your life. As if the word of God is absolutely true. And necessary. Two different things. You can believe something's absolutely true. But it's not absolutely necessary. So we, we've had passes before to Dollywood. I get an an ad all the time that tells me right now, for those of you who are interested, are the lowest rates of the year for season passes, right? Absolutely true, not necessary, okay? I believe this is true. This is not necessary for me to do anything about this. You're going to have all kinds of things like that happen in your life, like the check engine light, right? No, that's necessary, by the way. That's, that's, yeah, Okay. All right. Check engine light. Necessary. Get it looked at. Okay. Uh, Do you believe that what God says is not only true, but is necessary? Necessary means, you know what it means. I have to do this. This is crucial to me living my life. When we look at him saying, my my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will give rest for your souls. What he's saying is what I'm telling you is true and it is necessary. But if you say it's true, but not necessary and don't act on it, guess what? You're not going to experience the rest for your souls. What do we really believe? Do we believe it's true and necessary? James talks about this, another one of my favorite passages. 
chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? This is, I think, where this is an indictment of the American church right now. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, or what we say in the South, I'll pray for you. (laughs) Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, as if they're separate. Show me your faith apart from your works. And this is where James hits it, the nail right on the head. I will show you my faith by my works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. What James is saying is, just because you say something is true, doesn't mean you live as if it's true. What he's saying is not that you have to have works to please God, because that is not what God says. God says, if you have faith, you please God. What he's saying is, if you don't have a life that demonstrates the necessariness of living out God's word, you don't actually have faith. Not that you have to have both. Works is not crucial to having faith so that if you come in, you got to get cleaned up and you got to stop doing X, Y, and Z, and you got to make sure that you're doing all the right things that the church tells you to do, and then maybe God will be pleased with you. That is not what Scripture says. Scripture says if you have faith, God is pleased with you. What he is saying, what James is saying is if you say you have faith and it doesn't change anything about your life and doesn't motivate you to act, that is not faith. Are you motivated to change your life based on what you read in God's word? If you're not reading God's word, you have no idea. And you like it that way. I don't have any idea what God's saying, and I don't want to. As long as I don't know. It's like when we were kids and our parents would tell us to do something. We stick our fingers in our ear and go, I didn't hear it. I didn't hear anything. We choose ignorance because it's easier to live the way we want to live. For some of us, though, this is not the problem. You are willing. You are ready. You read something. You're like, I don't know how I'm going to make this a part of my life, but I'm going to make it happen. What happens if you're not sure if God is real in your life? Okay, I believe these things. These things are true, but I still just not sure that he's real. Just not positive. I want you to, to be certain of one thing, and this is what Scripture tells us over and over again, is that you, as a follower of Jesus, are being transformed, and God is active in your life. Even if you are not pursuing Him in that moment. Because God has a destination in mind for you, and He is drawing you to that place 24-7, 365. It doesn't matter how much of a failure you are. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you are. It doesn't matter what your life has looked like. God is drawing you to this place. God is calling you and working in you for you to be transformed. 2 Corinthians 3 says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That reference is a reference of Moses that being in the presence of God had to cover his face. He couldn't stand the glory of the Lord. And yet we, having the Holy Spirit imparted within us, we 
experience the glory of God and it is transforming us to become like Christ. See, I'm not there yet. I look around the room and, and, and some of you that I am privy to your stories are way farther down the road than I am. I'm not there yet. But I'm more there than I was. And this time next year, I expect to be farther down the road than I am right now. You are being transformed. Just because God is not moving mountains in your life in this very moment does not mean that he's not active in your life. If you're questioning, is God real in my life? Is he doing something in my life? Know that what he has said is, I am working your entire lives to transform you into the image of my son. This is what I'm continuing to do. If some of you are thinking, oh, I don't know. Maybe I've messed up. Maybe I've kind of spoiled the process. Maybe God, I haven't loved him enough. I've not given enough. I've not shown up to church enough. I've not read my Bible enough. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Remember Philippians 1, 6, and he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want to leave you with today. I believe that life is meant to be simple. We make it complex. The overarching principles that guide our behavior and that guide our focus and guide the way that we make decisions in life are meant to be simple. We've made them complex. People will say, you're being simplistic. Simple faith is not simplistic. It means you're all in. But it's still simple. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. What does it look like For us to enter into 2019, simply believing and acting on that belief. That is not something that's good or true, but it is also something that is necessary. Some questions that I have to ask myself at times, and I ask you now. Do you really believe, and I mean believe in a way... That you are being transformed. That you trust. Do you believe in a way that you see his word, read his word, and believe that it is necessary? Do you really trust God? You see, if there's a, a, a list somewhere in the back of your heads of things you disagree with God about, you don't trust God. So one of the things that we we believe in the complexities of this world is that we have to agree with you 100% to trust you. I got to agree with every single part. There's a part of faith in which I look to God and say, God, you are the creator of everything. You, you know everything. You can do anything. You chose to create us. We messed it up. You died on the cross for us. And you've asked me to follow you and to trust you. And whenever you tell me that something's good, then that is good. And if something is bad, then that is bad. And I should focus on the good things and not focus on the bad things. You're God. I'll do that. If I don't agree, that's my problem, not yours. But I'm going to trust you even if I don't agree. This is one of the amazing things about growing to an adult. 
Because there are so many things you disagree with your parents about. Now, some of you, you've got different family stories and maybe you've got terrible relationship with your parents and you don't believe anything they have to say. But if you've grown up in a somewhat ha- you know, healthy family, you, the older you get, the more you realize they knew more than you thought they did. How is it that God doesn't know more than we do? How do we come to him and say, God, you're wrong on this. That's not simple faith. That's not trust. Instead, we say, I I may not get it. I may not understand it. It may be a while before I do, but I'm going to trust you regardless that this is good and this is right. And finally, wherever you are in the process, as we embark over just simplifying things within our lives so that they not only make sense, but they actually allow us to breathe more fully, to live life with more purpose, And to actually be content. Remember that he says, God rewards those who seek him with simple faith. As you seek him, he will reward you. Now that may or may not be success, a better job, a better car, wealth. Our rewards, the kind of rewards God gives are usually not the kind of rewards we're looking for. But what would it look like for you to feel whole, full, complete, at peace, fully content without needing anything else? What would that look like? As we seek Him, that is where He will lead us. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about a number of areas in our life that this, this idea of just simply following as he has called us to follow. What does it look like to have simple worship, simple faith? What does it look like to be a simple church? What does it look like to really follow him? And I hope that you'll join us. I hope you'll stay with us. Uh, I'm excited about where we're headed this year. I shared, a, a, I don't know, a few weeks ago, Financially, it was, you know, we asked if you could give to give, our, and we, our expenses had increased, and our giving had dropped, and I'm just so thankful for many of you who have done that and uh, have gotten us into a healthy position here to start 2019. I'm excited about those of you who may commit to supporting this church in this year, not just financially, but in serving through your attendance through loving each other, through being there for each other, being a part of a small group. And uh, I'm excited about some of the mission opportunities we have. A friend of mine is starting a church just down the road from us. And so uh, I've been spending some time talking with him, and we have some opportunities to actually do what most churches in Chattanooga wouldn't do, is to actually work with them and to help them, to serve our community together. And I'm looking forward to some opportunities that we can do that. We have some, some of you that are sitting here today that are getting connected with other groups in our immediate area and some outside of our immediate area that we can continue to come alongside and serve together. I'm excited about what's going to happen in 2019. It doesn't mean we have to get more complex. We have to have more programs. It doesn't mean that we have to have all kinds of new, deepening, growing things for us to grow in our faith and in our relationship with each other. I'm excited about where that's going. I invite you to be with us as we start this 
New Year's journey together. Would you pray with me? Father, God, your love is overwhelming. You're patient with us, even when we ourselves are not patient. Father, you love us even when we are just selfishly thinking of ourselves. You endure our prayers when we think of nothing but ourselves, and yet you call us to a deepening level of faith and love for others that we just simply love others and make them a priority within our lives. I pray for those in the room today that are struggling with faith. They're just not sure that this is real. And yet you have told us that the Holy Spirit will empower us and will draw us and teach us. I pray that you would do that. I pray for those who have experienced you in incredible ways, but right now things seem dry. They're not sure what you're saying, what you're doing, or if you're even maybe have given up on them. And God, I know you haven't. You've said you haven't. But I pray that they would have a fresh awakening within their own soul of knowing you, trusting you, and walking with you. You have said that you'll reward those who seek you. So, Father, together we seek you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.